Hi there, this is Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together two leaders from very different organisations to discuss how they learn to lead, the challenges they face every day and the advice they offer to others. This is our third series. If you're a new listener, thanks so much for downloading and please rate and review if you like what you hear. If you come back for more, even better and thanks as well. Earlier episodes feature dozens of CEOs from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond with their take on leading vital causes, famous brand names and multi-million pound enterprises. This time, the dreaming spies of Oxford University meet one of the UK's most caring charities. Elizabeth Keish is Chief Executive Officer of the Rhodes Trust, which runs one of the best-known scholarship programmes in the world. Set up in 1903 through the will of businessman Cecil Rhodes, every year it enables 100 students from around the world to study second or postgraduate degrees at Oxford University. Elizabeth is joined by Linda Thomas. She's CEO of Macmillan Cancer Support, one of the most trusted charities in the UK. Macmillan is famous for its 6,000 nurses who care for thousands of people coping with cancer. It also campaigns for better NHS cancer provision. I began asking Linda if the strained NHS meant getting diagnosed today was worse than in years gone by. Well, actually, I think it's the best time to be diagnosed really? with cancer since I joined Macmillan, actually. Nothing to do with me, obviously. So even though the numbers are going up, life expectancy has actually rocketed after cancer diagnosis. So at the turn of the century, the chances were that you'd have a two-year life expectancy. Now average life expectancy is 10-year plus after a cancer diagnosis. Mm. We have a proliferation of new treatments, so many, many, many new drugs keeping patients alive and actually often keeping patients alive and in good health as well. So it's a complicated picture. I think I'd say. What about those numbers then that you've put out and have been talked about recently? I think there are 3 million people in the UK living with cancer at the moment. There are two thirds of people who, who maybe aren't getting the support they need. More and more people being diagnosed with cancer and not just cancer, with every single disease actually. The NHS is at breaking point at a time when there just aren't enough qualified people working in the NHS. We know there's a 40,000 nurse shortage in this country um, and that's not likely to change anytime soon. And I think if if you looked across all of the professionals, the medical professionals, there's a shortage in radiographers, radiologists, oncologists, practically everywhere we look, there are shortages. So, so that's a real challenge. And I think the interesting part of that is looking at how we might work differently altogether in the future. Yeah. So five years in then, how does Macmillan spread itself out with that facing that challenge? How do you deploy the organisation, if you like? So the first thing we did actually when I became CEO was we actually mapped the need. So we went and asked patients what it was that was most important to them, where they felt their care was fantastic, where they felt there were things that weren't working well for them, and what were their biggest needs. And then we really mapped our strategic direction based on those needs, working backwards from a principle of, well, well, if people say this is what they want and need from us, how can we provide that to them? And not always directly providing it, but actually then working with other partners as well to be able to provide that for them as well. So it's been a really interesting journey from that perspective. One of the things we spotted quite quickly on was that when you have a cancer diagnosis it is the most scary moment of your life and quite often people just weren't being supported in the way that was needed mm. so we've had a big focus on putting clinical nurse specialists support workers in at the point of diagnosis 
really trying to improve our information for people, particularly our online information for people. So, for example, now when you come to the Macmillan website, you're starting a journey rather than having a one-off interaction on a pe- just a, a page of information. Mm. So really trying to support people at that point with the hope that if we're there for them from the beginning, then actually we can stay with them right the way through whatever happens with mm. their cancer. And, you know, let's remember, most people go on and actually, you know, with that 10-year survival now actually have really good quality of life after yeah. cancer. Yeah. Elizabeth, I want to bring you in and talk about this point about mapping the need. Tell me about Rhodes Trust, that, you know, one of the most famous scholarships in the world, you know, very, uh, a lot of great people have done it and very well resourced, I think. So what's your challenge coming into that? Great. Yes. So we are the oldest uh, graduate fellowship, international fellowship in the world, founded in 1903. But what I like to say is that we're a 117-year-old startup. (laughs) Um, You know, it's really been an amazing journey. It predated me over the last decade. The Rhodes Trust has repositioned itself to be, you know, what does it take to be a preeminent global scholarship in the 21st century? So we have globalized, we've added scholarships from China, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, uh, now actually available to students from any country in the world. Very excited about that, that launched uh, two years ago. We are also expanding our platform, so have launched a number of partnership fellowships, all with the same core vision and mission, which I think is more important than ever before, of bringing people together across national boundaries, across disciplinary boundaries to work together to solve humanity's challenges. Mm. And so we now are working, we have a a postdoctoral science fellowship called the Schmidt Science Fellowship Mm. funded by Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Uh, We have at the Atlantic Institute, which works with mid-career fellows who are in different ways working on social equity. And we also work with the Mandela Rhodes Foundation, which Mm. is a pan-African fellowship. And we're launching a program called RISE, which will identify brilliant public-spirited young people who need a boost, 15 to 17 years old, around the world uh, and bring them together. So at the core of this, there is about 100 students a year. They are picked from wherever they're studying in the world because they're brilliant and have great promise. I think each scholarship is worth about £60,000. They come to Oxford for two years. It's for a second degree or a postgrad. And... um, who can argue with that? It's wonderful. You know, they're from all over the world. As you say, it's about 100 a year now. They can stay longer as well. So some about a third to a half of them do a defill. So they actually stay longer. And we work with them. We bring them together around character, service, and leadership, help them reflect on their own values and to reflect on how they build community across all of these different backgrounds and perspectives that they bring. It feels very much like you have Rhodes, which is the great brand, and then lots of other things now hanging off it. 15 to 17, the mid-career stuff and so on. Was that in train or have you cooked all that up in it since you arrived? No, Can you definitely, take credit for all of that? I do not. I <laughs> most definitely do not. What attracted me to Rhodes was that sense of dynamism of an organization that has a very strong brand but is not resting on its laurels mm. and is really asking, you know, how do we live up to this mission in creative and deeper ways? And so other than Rise, which is this 15 to 17-year-old program, that that was not. I mean, that happened in the last uh, in the last six months or so. But everything else yep. was kind of in startup mode, and I've been helping to to move it forward. Yeah, it feels like Macmillan 
you know, very well known and the nurse is very well known. There's the care element, not so much the cure element. There are other cancer charities who can fund that work. But what surprised me is in reading in is there's quite a campaign element now. Is that something you've brought on? Yeah, definitely. That's something that I've really championed. I was really fortunate enough to be the first campaigns manager when we created the campaigns team back in the noughties in Macmillan. You have had many jobs there. I've had lots of jobs <laughs> there, actually. Yeah, but that was one of my favourite jobs, uh-huh. actually, because it really was about saying... We're great at caring, and when you care for somebody, you can change somebody's life. There's no question about it. But when you campaign and you change something, you can change a lot of people's lives. And and I always remember, I was at one of the party conferences a long time ago now, where it was announced that prescription charges were going to be made free to cancer patients. And that was a massive moment for the organisation, because mm. we knew what a big deal that was for people. Sometimes people were not, not actually cashing in their prescriptions, for example, because they couldn't afford to pay for them. Sometimes people were sharing drugs because they couldn't afford to pay for them. So it's it's, it's things like that that actually are really important. And I think the things that people need from us, so whether that's prescription charges, hospital parking, for example, is a big issue. You might not necessarily associate Macmillan with hospital parking. When you have to go to hospital every day for radiotherapy for six weeks and you've got to pay for parking every day, that's a huge cost. So looking at some of those financial implications for cancer as well has been something that we've campaigned loud and very hard on. And our current campaign, which is not likely to go away any time soon is really about the workforce in the NHS. Have we got enough nurses? Have we got enough doctors? Have we especially got enough people working in the community? So the social care part of, of um, health mm. as well and really pressing hard on government and you know big bosses who can make things happen to say we don't think we've quite got that right yet. Because we have a big promise of, I think there's even legislation behind it so there, there will be extra money going into the NHS. Sure. The question is how it's deployed. There's a lot of money going into the NHS and the NHS is worth more than $200 billion pounds a year. But the NHS is a massive, massive organisation having to deal with the growing demand for people every day. You can't shut the doors of A&E because you've run out of money. You have to keep the service going. And I think it is around how that money then is deployed. And one thing's for sure, we don't believe there's enough money going into both training professionals, but also the continuous professional development that people need to be able to maintain their skills so that's a bit a piece of work that we're looking at at the moment. And, you know, the election talked a lot about fears around privatisation and, and so on. What's the Macmillan view on that? The NHS is a most fantastic institution. It is a complete national treasure and it's our biggest partner. So, of course, I'd say what happens in the NHS is absolutely vital. And the vast, vast majority of people who get their cancer treatment in this country go through the NHS. Mm. So getting the NHS right is the most important mm. thing. And that's something that we're very focused on at the moment. I think if you put an organisation like mine has to to put patients at the heart of it so whatever is best for patients so you know we work with some commercial organisations we've worked with Boots for example and Boots have a high street chain of pharmacists and we want patients to be able to get information in the high street so we've trained every Boots pharmacist in the country to be Macmillan badged so that they can offer cancer information that seems to me like a great use of partnership and yeah. it's really benefited thousands of But it's totally, com- totally commercial between charity and commerce. It's actually Absolutely. the NHS not involved there. And they don't need to yeah. be involved. And I think that's the other thing is don't get organisations into things when they yeah. don't actually need to be involved there. Yeah. Elizabeth, tell me a little more around this scholarship, how you find the people. Uh, we have an amazing global web of volunteers. Our strategic plan talks about lifelong fellowship for global impact. And selection is one of the, is kind of at the heart uh, of what 
what we do. So yes, we have national secretaries in uh, now about almost nearly 30 constituencies as well as in the global constituency, which is for students Mm -hmm. from everywhere else. And so each of those individuals is a volunteer. They're uh, a Rhodes Scholar. And then they put together, you know, we have Every year, five to six hundred volunteer selectors. Mm. Actually, even more than that, because in many countries we have to do multiple stages of selection. So there's a paper application process. It has a lot of different pieces. They have to write a personal statement. Uh, we are looking not only for academic brilliance, but also for leadership and character and creativity. And then they get up to eight letters of recommendation. Then there's kind of multiple stages, sometimes Skype interviews with volunteers, and then uh, ultimately um, an in-person interview. So every Rhodes Scholar and every Rhodes Scholar finalist has an indelible memory of that walking into a room and being interviewed for 30 minutes by seven or eight distinguished people. (laughs) I always say with a job until you've got to go in and show off a bit. (laughs) Yes, but also to be authentic. You Mm. know, part of what we try to kind of test the mettle of people. What struck me was interesting is you're looking for people who are willing to serve, but also you're looking for people who who show leadership promise. That's sort of the secret sauce, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, it really is. And of course, we constantly work on refining our. You know, we just we were we just rolled out implicit bias training for mm. all of our selectors because we you know we are really passionately committed to being an inclusive scholarship and finding those amazing young people around mm. the world. But you know, we're we're looking as much much for character as we, you know, they have to be Mm -hmm. really smart. They have to be able to get into the University of Oxford. But, you know, we want people who will dedicate their lives to something bigger than themselves. And the way you've try to find that, you know, they're 22, 23 years old, they need to have demonstrated that already, mm. you know, mm. in what they've what they've done. Linda, you know, if you're the CEO of a big company, everyone in the room is being paid to be there. Yeah. But with you, you have got your staff, 2,000 people, you've got a you know, huge volunteer network, and a lot of those are the fundraisers as well. So yeah. how do you sort of shape them and make sure that everyone's working together? Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about Macmillan volunteers, because they <laughs> are the bit of the organisation that I feel so passionately about. Um, I was very fortunate after I had my first baby, I gave up work and I decided to go back to work. So I went in and worked as a volunteer in a charity. And it was just the best thing ever because you just, you know, you got to do some really interesting and amazing stuff and really learn some skills about the sector. And I've always held that deep within me that actually out there is a workforce that at 7am in the morning on a Saturday, I picked up uh, some social media that the guys were getting ready for the Brighton Half Marathon yesterday, for example, and they would be there every week of the year at some marathon or some run or another, literally putting banners up in the wind and in the rain. And they are totally amazing. So I think they are an integral part because they deliver so much. I mean, we have volunteers who run befriending schemes. So when people come out of hospital and they don't have anybody in their homes, these people go in and they support people in their homes. Now, that is one of the most important things that you can do for somebody. So we invest money in our volunteers. We train our volunteers. We we really have, take safeguarding really seriously so that they have proper training and, and they feel safe wherever they're going. We reward them and recognize them. The Macmillan Volunteer Awards is the best party of the year. Mm because you get to hear about some amazing things that people have done, all in the name of really just wanting to do good for people. So they're an absolutely essential part. I've got a very big soft spot for our volunteers. So it's, it's one of those things that if, if somebody said, there's a volunteering event happening here, chances are I'll prioritise that and make mm. sure I go along to it. It's always really great to see what's happening on the ground and understand what it's like from, from people 
out there. Yeah. So yeah, you could leave them to their own devices because they're so totally committed. But actually, you you know invest a little to make sure. sure they're doing it as well as they can. Yeah, I mean the question is why would we want to leave them to their own devices when actually together we can work so much more powerfully. So we have quite a big paid for workforce as well that will be looking after our um, our, our volunteer workforce. So those would be our regional fundraisers who are out and about in the country and making sure that they work with our committees. For example, mm. you get the best out of people when you're working in partnership mm. and. The vo- I want the volunteers to feel that they're part of something much bigger than their little piece of work that they're doing wherever mm. they are because it all adds into su- up, up into such a great big part. And also, you never know where your next piece of innovation is coming from either. Mm. So what seems like a small project somewhere could actually then turn into our next big rollout nationally when we see that something is working brilliantly in one part of the country. Elizabeth, tell me about your leadership style. Some years ago when I was, uh, I was a college president and I, I had a somewhat ornery faculty member who was serving on one of the many, many task forces that I had created. And he looked at me once and he said, you are painfully inclusive. And um, and I, I had to laugh at that. And I said, you know, I'm going to put that on my tombstone. Um, so I do really believe in being collaborative and giving people voice in mm. trying to build diverse teams. You know, I think organizations that have diverse teams and that enable everyone, whether they are a senior member of the team, a junior member of the team, a member of the ground staff, a volunteer, everybody to be invested in and to have a voice in shaping the mission and the vision of the organization. I think it that is what leads to really high impact and effective organizations. So, I mean, I've learned a lot along the way about how to do that, yeah. but, but that is very much my kind of orientation as a leader. And it's painfully inclusive, a shock to the system for Rhodes. I think you were a Rhodes Scholar I was, back yes. in 83. Yes. And uh, I think not, not, I think it was in the 70s there was an act of parliament required to let women in correct so this yes. is a, so in very in relatively recent history this is a, an organization that was not painfully inclusive no i think that's absolutely right i mean it's quite a journey that you know as you say women uh, became eligible for the roads in 1977 uh, though the first african american road scholar was elected in 1907 which is quite amazing there wasn't another one elected for about 60 65 years so the first uh, black uh, african road scholars mm. uh, only in really only in the 1980s. Mm. So, you know, so, I mean, that's an important part of our history and Mm. it is a journey. I mean, I think I'm the first woman CEO of the organization as well. And so all all of that, I think, is it it just is a a sign of this adaptive uh, journey of, you know, becoming a stronger, better, more inclusive organization. But a few sort of first female bosses in it, which is great, but in a way it's a shame. Yes. It's been a, in, yeah. Yes. Are you the Are you the first? Yeah. Are you really? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. spent the first two years thinking I had it was, there was definitely an imposter syndrome mm-hmm. because it was almost like oh how, how can I be good enough for this job actually and whether that's because of my gender I don't know or maybe just because of me but yeah I am the first female CEO. Linda, when you get to the top, does all that background help? Have you got immediately got people behind you? I felt really really very lucky that I think I did have the organisation behind me and I think I did use and I have used my knowledge of the organisation to be able to help build what I hope now is a really high performing team because this isn't just about me it's about the 1800 people who work for Macmillan Mm. but it was certainly a big culture shock coming into the CEO role because I was used to running functions and when you run a function you can be tremendously independent whilst under the banner of working for a big organisation and you know particularly when I was running the fundraising teams for example you know the emphasis was very much on delivering income delivering growth and you can be quite single-minded about it Mm. 
my style has had to massively change and adapt. And I was interested when you were asking Elizabeth about her lead, leadership style. I think I would use a word adaptive, which you use. That, that feels now more important than ever, actually. So there are times when one has to be directive, but there's also times when you've got to include everybody in it as well and getting mm. that balance right. Um, and there are also times when you just have to say, I no longer know as much as so many other people about things. And I think particularly around the digital space. So... You know, a big challenge for an organisation that's more than 100 years old is how do we modernise? How do we become mm. fit for the future? That is not going to sit with me. That sits with a, with a team of people who have much more of a tech startup mindset mm. than I do. Yeah. So empowering those people to go and do it is yes. really important. And Elizabeth, I think because you have this dual role, you are leading the trust, but also warden of, of the house, which me, I think means you have that almost day-to-day -day relationship with the scholars that are all in Oxford. But then also the, there's the Eric Schmitz of this world and so on. You've got to make sure that the organization is the best it can be for all of these people who are putting in huge amounts of money through you. That's right. That's right. No, it's it's the great joy and challenge of these roles. You know, you have such a complex, I know Linda as well, such a complex stakeholder map and you need to be attentive, genuinely authentically attentive to people. So when I have scholars in my office, I meet one-on-one -on -one with all of them, almost 300 a year. And those are amazing conversations. You know, these are young people who are brilliant. They're navigating this very complex world thinking about career, you know, so you have to be really, really focused on them. But then you're also, you know, juggling that with all kinds of other yeah. things, uh, traveling around the world, cultivating donors. Uh, so it's what makes it fun. You have made made a job for yourself. I think you want to go from 100 to 125 scholars as part of the 10 year plan. Indeed. I think the whole scheme costs about 16 million pounds a year to run. So you've got to keep feeding the machine. That's right. That's yep. right. You know, we are we function on endowment models. So we're trying to raise mm. endowment for for new scholarships so that it's about five million pounds per scholarship. That means that actually covers three scholars at a time. So right. it funds uh, three people in residence, both their tuition and their their living stipend. Yeah. So it is, you know, I was in China four times last year um, because, you know, we're, we were, were kind of brand new in China. We just selected our fifth cohort of scholars. We want to double there. Mm. We think it's really important uh, with China's rise to, uh, to have Chinese scholars part of this global community. Uh, but we don't have alumni there, you know, so it is actually finding people who care about education. It, it's virgin territory. It's virgin yeah. territory and then cultivating those relationships. And it's been really exciting and a great learning opportunity mm. to, you know, to, to meet people and to find that right fit donor. And is that um, what success looks like then? Because it's different, difficult to know what the KPIs would be. It's more people coming through the system, more diverse. Definitely. Five or ten years yes, definitely more people, more diverse. I think also to be for the the experience in Oxford, you know, to to be supportive of scholars and an appropriate level of support because we have such a diverse group of scholars. You know, we have scholars who are whose families are homeless. We have scholars mm. who are from rural southern Africa. Um, and you can imagine the kind of culture shock mm. of coming to Oxford. So providing that kind of consistent level of support, equitable level level of support, and then also the depth of their mm. of their experience, uh, not only academic but in other spheres mm. as well. So all of that is is part of the KPIs. I'm also really passionate about how do we leverage this 
you know, we are unique in the world. There are many, many new scholarship schemes, many of which actually say they're the Rhodes Scholarship of the 21st century. And I like to say, actually, the Rhodes Scholarship <laughs> is the Rhodes Scholarship of the 21st mm-hmm. century. Um, but how, but, you know, what, what our unique asset is, is these five, thousand plus alumni around the world in all kinds of fields of endeavor how do we connect them with current scholars with each other uh, and and leverage that for positive impact in the world and how do we just check their their donating just a there's also that yeah, part yeah. too very important <laughs> Linda among your jobs director of fundraising and and having talked to other charity bosses in in this booth they say that being the CEO is the chief fundraiser do you take that with you or do you have to just let someone else worry about the money a little bit a bit of both I think Think. Mm. So I've got a fantastic fundraising director. It is her job to deliver the income. What I would say is I am probably a means to her doing that in lots of cases. So I get deployed. I mean, part of my job is really not to decide what I'm going to do on a day-to-day basis, but for the organisation to say, where is it best to deploy a CEO? So whether that's with government or whether that's with donors, yep. is making sure that we do, you know, utilise, you know, there are times when only a chief exec can be in the office with another chief exec. Mm. So therefore, it's a useful um, asset to have. And certainly, I would say at least a third of my time is spent on fundraising Mm. Um, and fundraising at the moment in the UK is pretty flat so at a time when demand for our services is going up and fundraising from the general public is quite flat and by no means sure that the next generation is going to want to give money in the same way as the generation that gives money now is giving actually there's a real challenge around um, innovation in the fundraising market and looking at new and creative ways of raising money I mean looking at your last figures 65 million pounds being deployed on the fundraising effort the top line was down about 7%, which... Yes, it's, it's got, it got a little bit better in 2019. I'm a year, I'm really a year behind. You are, but yeah. but you're not wrong, though. Yeah. At the moment, from a fundraising perspective, it looks like we're trying to stem the tide of decline rather than move into active growth. But, <laughs> but, but, but there are areas where growth is possible. I think money through corporate donations, we can maximise a bit more on that. I mean, I'd be really interested in having a chat with Elizabeth about your approach to working with philanthropists, for example, and what type of, of opportunity there might be there for a charity like ours, which mm. traditionally doesn't do very well from a major major donor fundraising pool. Uh, we, we are brilliant at, peop- at small amount, at large amounts of people giving us relatively small amounts of money and it all adds to that yeah. 230 and fam- million. And famous for it with the coffee yeah. mornings and, and so on. The- well, I certainly wouldn't want ever any, any to be any, bend any illusion that we still don't need people to do that because that's really important. You know, are UK charities still going through the trust issue, if you like, or are we out the other side? Again, a little bit of both. Sorry to sit on the fence on that. It wouldn't take much for trust to start declining again and we have a massive responsibility as leaders in the sector to make sure everything we do, make sure that trust, public trust in charities does not go down because as much as anything else, I want people to know Macmillan is a safe place for them to go and get services, mm. not just give money to. But I do think the general public have got amazing generosity in this country mm. I and mean, the British public are unbelievable. And when I talk to colleagues overseas, for example, they don't have anything like the fundraising market that we do in this country. It's just remembering that's a privilege, not a right. Mm. And we need to maintain are wonderful, wonderful services so that people still think of Macmillan when they want to give money back. So, And what does the great success look like for you? Obviously, you want the government to listen to what you're saying. The money and resource that you're deploying, is it if there is more people with, with cancer? I mean, you have, I think, 
six and a half thousand Macmillan nurses within the NHS, but but funded and trained by you. Is it about getting 50% more of those or something? Yeah, I think good looks like from the starting point of the person living with cancer, that they get the support they need Mm. when they're going through their cancer. Right now, we know we can only really be there for between one and two people at a diagnosis part. We want to be there for everybody who gets diagnosed in this country in whatever way they need us to be. So therefore, that's really where we're deploying most of our resources. Mm. That having been said, you know, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, end of life, for example, 50% of people still die of cancer. We really need to be actively campaigning that care end of life is Mm. as good as it needs to be. So I guess people have huge expectations of Macmillan. If that's if you said to me, what do you lose sleep over? Is that for sure? Can we live up to those expectations? Can we meet the needs of the growing numbers of people who are diagnosed? And that that's a huge job, and we're ready for it, and we are you know doing everything we can to yes. be able to meet that task. But, and do you hope to put more nurses in if you can? Definitely, that's that is yeah. a core part of a strategy. Whether it's nurses yeah. or whether it's support workers yeah. or care navigators, yeah. yeah, the the people that can help the people with the needs that they have for sure. Yeah. But, we, but we can't do it all. No, sure. Elizabeth, I have to ask you about Cecil Rhodes. He believed in white leadership. He had links to the slaves trade and so on. It seems like you have embraced the best bits of the legacy. How, how would you put it? Because there are there are campaigns to say his name should be scrubbed from history. Yes, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, we're basically all the product of very complicated legacies. Mm. In the case of the Rhodes Trust, you know, we it, it's perhaps more explicit than in the case of some institutions. But I actually see it as an opportunity. I mean, I, I feel like with Cecil Rhodes, there are many elements of his worldview that are uh, appropriately, uh, we should consign to the dustbin of history. But at the same time, he had this vision and he deployed his his money from his estate, you know, to bring young people together and to educate them. Mm-hmm. And the selection criteria that he developed, other than he did include success in manly sports, uh, we have sort of dropped that. <laughs> uh, but the others, you know, sympathy and kindness for the weak, it's kind of archaic language, but actually incredibly powerful, mm-hmm. a willingness to use your your talents to the full, a propensity to consider public duties as your highest aim. I mean, these things are really powerful and compelling and yeah. evergreen. And so, you know, what we say is we are not in the business of, you know, hagiography of Cecil Rhodes. Mm. Uh, we actually engage with the complexity of that legacy with scholars. So as part of their orientation, we have sessions about mm. this. So we don't kind of run away from it or try to bury it. But really what we're about is investing in the future. Mm. You You think there's been a lull, but there is still the roads must fall campaign. I mean, what do you say to them? I mean, I think we know we had quite a few, we had several Rhodes scholars who were in leadership roles in Rhodes Must Fall. And it's been very interesting speaking with them about their kind of journey from a place of sort of anger and rejection to Mm. a place of embracing the discomfort. You know, mm. of saying, uh, I mean, I've had, you know, I've had Southern African, South African scholars say, in some ways, I realize what's the best I can do. I can take Cecil's money and go and do good work, you know, in the world. I and think to, some of the scholars actually talk about it as a revenge mission. Yes, <laughs> yes. And yeah. so, so you know, I, I think that um, we, we don't currently have an active Roads Must Fall group within the Rhodes Scholar community, but we do have lots of scholars who are wrestling mm. with important issues, including 
including those of legacy yep. and and pushing us, you know, and and saying, you know, we should be doing more on on uh, dealing with that legacy. So, you know, I, I sort of welcome that. Yep. I think it's important. Those are important conversations in the modern world. What would he make of you as, as the boss? Do you think <laughs> that's a great <laughs> question? Um, you know, I was uh, it's funny. I was on a phone call with a. We were talking about volunteers earlier, and we have these wonderful class leaders who are very very committed to engaging with the Rhodes community. And I was on one, a global call, a few months into my wardenship, and a gentleman who's well into his 80s, who is one of the biographers of Cecil Rhodes, said at the end of the call, and I think Mr. Rhodes would be so proud of you. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I agree with you, but I really appreciate that you said that. You'll take that, yes. (laughs) I'll take it. Great. Linda, I want to delve back a little into your CV. You began in PR, and then you were in chat, and then you sort of morphed into charity PR, I think, with the National Children's Homes and so on. Was was that an early feeling? Well, you know, I'm I'm great at this. I want to do I want to do the job, but also really make a difference for. Yeah. Was that D- it? Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay. I mean, I had a blessed first part of my career where I was doing things like flogging jeans, um, silly soft drinks, getting people to choose one thing over another, which now I really don't care about. But at the time, it was absolutely fantastic. So working on commercial mm. sponsorships, marketing and PR. But during that time, I was really fortunate enough to work with the Royal Marsden Hospital on a beta pro bono work. And then I also worked, I don't know if you remember, when John McCarthy was a prisoner, yeah. a political prison. I worked on the fifth anniversary of the Friends of John McCarthy. And at that point, I just thought, this is what I want to do. And five years in, he was still in captivity. That's right. Yeah. And we yellow ribboned London. Um, uh, We did did a yellow Mm. ribbon campaign and it was the best thing I'd ever worked on. And I think at that point, I thought, actually, this is what I would like to do. So when I was fortunate, I had a career break when my first child was born. I just made an active decision then that said, I'll use my skills, but I want to go and do something. And it's not about doing good. It's about feeling that your work is valuable and that it's contributing to something. So yeah, I had seven years working in child protection at the NSPCC, which was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed that. We we sort of put uh, child sexual abuse on TV for the first time with primetime advertising and really raised awareness of those issues. And, mm. it, and it felt like we were doing important work at the time. And how soon after coming into Macmillan do you think... Oh, quite like to be the boss here, really. I've never thought that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think that until about two years into being the boss, actually. I think it it was just one of those things. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate. And I've heard on some of your other podcasts about people talking about the bosses that they've had and what you learn from the people. Well, tell me about that. Yes, I'm coming on to mentorship. So I was really very blessed with the people who I'd... I had When I was was in fundraising, first of all, I worked with a woman who taught me everything there was to know about how to be a good leader and motivate people. And even... Even now, when I think, oh, right, is that right? I think, well, what would Judy have done? And it's been really great. Mm. Learning from the best is absolutely amazing. And then my previous CEO, who who he was a fantastic entrepreneur, and, and he did things, you know, that, that you sort of think, have you really just done that? But yes, he's done it. And he really went out and he did great things for the organization. So learning from really good people, mm-hmm. I think, is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, and, and, and in fact, you know, my, my previous boss really actively championed me for this role. And that was fantastic. So. Did he have to coax you into it? It sounds like he, he might have done. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I suffer and I probably still suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome, a little bit of, well, I couldn't possibly do that and I'm not good enough to do that. Um, and sometimes you just got to get over yourself um, and say, well, if you're not going to do it, who else yeah. is going to do it? And are you as good as that person? Well, yeah, I think I am actually. Yeah. And Elizabeth, you're nodding through that. Um, you were... Um, 
Uh, I think, well, you can tell the story better than I can. You you were in Oxford for an anniversary of, of Rhodes. Yes. I think you'd already given notice you were running Agnes Scott, a, a great liberal arts college in Atlanta for women, <laughs> and you were leaving there. And then, then something happened and someone rang you up and said, would you fancy this? No, yeah, it was one of those magical things. So I, so I was at uh, president of Agnes Scott College for 12 years, and that was you know, coming to that decision of saying – there's an arc to a presidency and that it was time for me to to seek the next challenge that, you know, I felt really good about what I'd accomplished there. So I had told my board chair, I will, you know, when the time comes, I'll give you a whole year to find my successor. And so we did announce um, a year in advance. And then, of course, I did have that moment of utter terror. You know, I am going to be unemployed. And as it happens, that was when the Rhodes Trust was celebrating their 40th anniversary of Rhodes Women. And so it was my first First time back to Rhodes House since I had been in Oxford to defend my my DPhil, and I knew about all the changes at the Rhodes Trust. You know, I'd been a, a modest donor, I'd been involved in selection, but actually feeling the the energy and the dynamism mm. of the house, and and start, you know talking to current uh, scholars. And the house was, is a physical house, which is sort physic- of the heart of the the scholarship. Where do they do they live there? They don't, um, but they come in. But they come in, and you know, when I was a scholar, the house was frankly a mausoleum. I mean, there was nothing going mm. on in the house. Um, but over the last ten years, the, you know, we've flung open the doors of the house, and there are, there's a lot going on, uh, and it, it's a welcoming place. And so I I experienced that, and. And that was, you know, a month before the the then CEO, my my predecessor, announced. So it was it was one of those serendipitous things. I realized, wow, this is something I might be really excited to do. And my husband and I met in Oxford, so it was also an opportunity for us yeah. to come back to where we met, which is yeah. great. And and I read they um, loved you at Agnes Scott. I think they named a day after you when you left. <laughs> they they did. It was a, <laughs> it was a wonderful uh, it was a wonderful experience. It's an educational form that's not well known in the UK. The the liberal arts college that mm. is really focused on undergraduate mm. education. We had an amazingly diverse uh, student body of about a thousand students, majority students of color, uh, have just been named two years in a row, the most innovative liberal arts college in America. So I'm really, really proud of that. And mm. yes, it was, you know, it was a wonderful journey. It had lots of ups and downs, the, yes. the financial crisis and, you know, all kinds of things. But we got to a great place. And but I'm, I, well, I read about the exit and, and it felt like they had a whole jamboree for you and your husband got a got a telescope. He did. Gosh, <laughs> yes, he did. It was amazing. Yeah, no, yeah. They, it was just the most generous and loving send off. But I mean, <laughs> leadership should not really be a popularity contest, should it, Linda? No, not at all. I mean, I wondered if I might be able to ask Elizabeth yeah, a question. Sure, Is please, that allowed on the podcast? It's very allowed. So so, so I, I'm really interested in the whole issue of diversity. Um, I think if there's one criticism that could be levelled at charities in this country is our lack of diversity, so much so that there are organisations out there that are talking about that. Um, and, and I guess I'd like to face into that and say, is there any advice you could give me as a leader of an organisation that there would be a perception that we are white and middle class? Yes. How can we shift the dial on that? Yeah, no, it's such an important uh, issue, and I really appreciate the question. And, you know, at Agnes Scott, when I arrived, there had never been a member of the senior leadership team who was a person of color. And one of the things I was really committed to doing was to being intentional and proactive about recruiting diverse talent. And by the time I left, half the cabinet 
uh, were were people of color. Now, it didn't happen all at once, mm-hmm. but you really have to commit to it. And by committing to it, 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 it is opening yourself up to those critiques and conversations. It's being proactive about recruiting in, in diverse places, um, of, of, of getting out there and saying, we know that we are serving a diverse mm-hmm. community. We, you know, and just not being, apologetic about it. It's actually, it's going to make you a stronger organization. And, uh, and you know, it is tough um, when you're going against a backdrop of people feeling like, well, that's not for me. You know, so at Rhodes, for instance, um, you know, we are working on diversifying our board of trustees, diversifying the the team, uh, have recently and are about to announce some, some new hires that are bringing more people of color onto the team, which is so important for a global scholarship scheme so that the scholars can can look and see. It's that persistence and proactivity and knowing that you're it's a long game and you'll get there. That's really helpful. Thank you. And I just wonder if I might make another ask of you. I wonder whether you'd be prepared to do some kind of action learning set with us. So maybe we could I'd collaborate on that. And, you know, <laughs> we could come and chat to you because I think you're right. There is something about the stating the intent and the being proactive about that. So so I would like to take you up on that. Now you said you'd love to do that. Thank you. There I'd you love go. That. That's how, the, that's how that's networks wonderful. work. Yes. But isn't the challenge, is, uh, Elizabeth, isn't the challenge with diversifying the, the leadership team it's a bit like diversifying the people on the scholarship program you can't do it unless the great universities around the world are doing their bit at the undergraduate level to bring people in then you can't do your bit at the top absolutely but i think you have to hit it from all levels simultaneously right. frankly you know so for instance i know and we are working closely with the university uh, with oxford there's a lot of energy around access and inclusion there's a, a lot of great people who are putting a lot of energy into it and in fact our new program rise which is uh, recruiting kids the at, 15 at the to 17 15 to age, 17 year olds you know we'll be partnering with oxford on rise uk mm. um, i just got back from zambians Zimbabwe and uh, India and South Africa, where we were also talking to educators and meeting kids. And, you know, there is energy at Oxford and at other universities around this and recognizing you have to build the network, you have to attract the kids in, you have to make sure that you are then you know, adapting mm. so that you're also learning. You know, you mm. can't just simply add diverse students and not change, you know, kind of mm. who you are. Mm. So you have to be working at all ends simultaneously. Yeah. And it can feel like a really hard slog. Mm. But then as you build momentum, you know, every single one of my diverse hires at Agnes Scott, the next one was easier than the previous one because sure. they could, I could then have someone help me recruit. Yeah. Linda, now are there people that you can rely on outside the organization who can use it as a sounding board and so on. Tell, yeah. me, tell me about that. So I, I've been really privileged to have really, some really great coaches and mentors along the way and a board that has been supportive of that as well because I think continuing to learn is massively important. Uh, one of my board members, I see him once a month. Uh, he is a brilliant critical friend to me and has been for the last five years. So that's been really, really important. Brings a completely different perspective because his experience is all in the commercial sector. So we have very good conversations around that and, and he's been really great. Um, I'm also doing some interesting work within the organisation at the moment as well about reverse mentoring. 
mentoring. So Mm. accepting the fact that really you're never too old to learn. And I think I'm always in learning mode and I love doing that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being mentored by people more junior than me in the organization, but who bring something different. So I'm being mentored on diversity. And I've got to be honest and say thank you to all those people that are working with me on that because it has been an eye opener for me to understand how people from different backgrounds and different communities feel in their everyday lives, not just when they come to work. And then, of course, what they bring to work as well. And that the starting point is completely different, actually. So that's been yeah. really brilliant for me. But it must be a great level as well for someone with the PR and media background. You probably need, you know, reverse mentor to tell you what TikTok is. Oh, completely. <laughs> totally. And and I rely so much on my three children for that, yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's really useful having young people. And certainly when we were testing innovations for millennials as well, mm. I think, actually, let me just run this past other people. Getting the views of, of people, whether they're people living with cancer, whether they're young people, yeah. whether they're people of colour or any other type of um, view that you need is so important. And certainly my greatest failures have all been when I haven't listened to other people mm. and when I've thought I've known best. Yeah. So I've learned that over the years. Just to change the subject, I wanted to ask about how yours is an organisation that is facing you know, death and loss a lot of the time. Does, it, does death almost become normalised? No, I don't think death has ever become normalised okay. for me since since I've been in Macmillan. But I think it's a really good question. And certainly for some of our frontline staff. So, for example, we have a very big contact centre where people are on the phones all, the day to, all day to people and they can be talking about some really difficult subjects, making sure that those people have got time in their day to be able to take time out from the phones, to be able to, when they're in the middle, of, you know, for, from time to time, we might have people ringing up with suicidal intentions, for example, that they've got clear points of escalation, mm. that they can get somebody over to help them immediately and get support around that is really important. Um, th- there's nothing that can prepare you when somebody dies. And certainly when I've been, in, you know, like everybody, I am touched by cancer in my private life. I lost mm. a, a, a very close friend at the start of this year and you feel the same as everybody else. Mm. And I think then it's really important to talk to other people and to get some help from from people and especially if my sister was diagnosed with cancer six years ago and I remember I'd be out talking about what it's like to be diagnosed and I was thinking this is happening to my sister right now and that Mm. felt like a difficult space Mm. so sometimes you have to try and distance yourself a little bit from things um, and make, and, re- and remember when you're not coping with something to ask for help around it. As so well. not bottle it up, but do try and switch off where possible. Yeah, as, I'm, so, as I'm, I'm yeah. certainly not a bottler of, up of no, things. No, no. And I think being quite open and honest about how you feel and showing vulnerability as a leader is really important. Yes. Elizabeth, you mentioned the you know the road seven years at Oxford. Yes. Picked up lots of qualifications and, and met a husband. So, it, so uh, you know, and <laughs> Productive then, time. And then you were, um, you were teaching in Virginia, California and Princeton. You could have had this wonderful time in academia and then suddenly something happened and you thought, OK, well, I, I'm going to move towards the administration side of things. How, how does that happen? Yes. No, those pivots, those pivotal yes. moments are in a career are really interesting. And so for me, you know, what, there's that, this great quote about, you know, vocation is where your deep joy meets the world's great need. What I found when I was on the kind of traditional academic track was that I just couldn't stop myself from being an organizer mobilizer. You know, I was just, even as a junior faculty member uh, at Princeton, I was on, you know, way too many committees. Uh, and, well, I think uh, prior to that, you did bring amnesty to, you were a student activist as I well. I was, I was. In fact, it's one of the reasons I always love student activists because <laughs> I was, I was that person, you know. Uh, the chickens have come home to roost, you know. <laughs> so what happened was this moment 
moment when I was, you know, still a junior faculty member at at Princeton, and Duke was launching an ethics institute, and somebody put my hand, uh, put my name, in, you know, and so I was, I got this letter saying I'd been nominated, and I knew there were a lot of senior people interested in that job, and I completely psyched myself out of, you know, I thought, well, this will be a wonderful job for me when I grow up. Someday. This is not just different to, to Linda's conversation. I know with that's, herself. I really you... resonated with me, you know, when you said that, Linda, because I absolutely had that, and I had this mentor. It was a man. And actually, it's very interesting. I think, you know, I do think that sometimes women, you know, men have imposter syndrome as well. But but sometimes there is a gendered dynamic to this of women feeling like, oh, well, I'm not the leader. Or I'm not ready. You know, there's research that shows that women, uh, if there are 10 qualifications for a job and they only have eight of them, they don't think they're, you know, yes. they're qualified. Anyway, so I had this wonderful friend and mentor who looked at me, I'll never forget this, and said, don't be an idiot apply. That was literally yep. the, the quote, which I have paid forward since and said to lots of people. And so that was that pivot moment where I stepped off the tradition. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be hired because um, I kind of went into that interview thinking I had a very little chance of actually landing the job. And mm. so this was just good experience. Mm. Um, so I was a little kind of fearless in a way in the interview. And so then they said, you're hired. And I, I went, oh my God. So that was the pivot where I found myself moving from, in a way, you know, a, a, a track that was difficult and challenging and wonderful. And I, you know, the academy is fabulous, but it was sort of laid out yep. to being an entrepreneur, you know, within mm -hmm. the academy because we were creating a university wide ethics institute and having to work with all kinds of co complex mm -hmm. stakeholders and ultimately raise money and build a board and, you know, do all of that. So I learned so much from that. And that was really the beginning of that journey for me of leaning into this question of, you know, yeah, I can be a, a leader, but again and again, just as with Linda, you know, you, yeah. you find yourself questioning yourself. So, Linda, just to wrap up now, what do you say when people come to you and ask advice about moving up an organization and becoming a leader? Well, one thing I haven't talked about now, I think, is taking your chances. Yeah. Um, well, you've both talked Elizabeth about it, really. has talked about that pivotal moment. And, mm. and I think sometimes you have to say yes to something where every bit of you inside is screaming no. <laughs> and, um, and probably if you're going to get to the roles that we have, there will have been one occasion when you've done that. Mm. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it's not the end of the world anyway, because, mm. you know, you haven't really lost anything by doing that. So I think it is about say yes to things more often. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. I think that's a great point to, to leave it at. So Linda Thomas, Elizabeth Keish, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you heard. Five stars only, please. You can find more leaders sharing their stories in previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. They include John Vincent, the co-founder of Leon, discussing the mission behind his healthy fast food chain. It turns out, maybe Graham was saying it, but it was to help humankind on their fundamental journey towards wholeness i'm not sure i quite knew that at the time but i've worked <laughs> i've kind of subsequently worked it out um which i guess you know to help people connect with themselves each other and the planet was basically why uh, why we did it in subsequent reading uh, it turns out that that is what most philosophers and most religions think is man's fundamental or humankind's fundamental journey so oh, i didn't know i was quite doing that but i think that's vaguely what we're doing it sounds a bit grand 